Hey all, this podcast was recorded before the death of George Floyd and the subsequent uprising that is taking place across the country. We recognize that this may not be the most relevant information at this point in time, but we wanted to share our thoughts on the Biden campaign because we fully expect them to start asserting themselves in the news again and very likely somehow turning this into an opportunity to ask for our votes. If this podcast seems helpful, please give it a listen. And whether you listen or not, we strongly encourage folks to connect with their local protests and in particular with Black-led resistance organizing. I'll be posting some Michigan and Minnesota-specific bail fund information in the description. Please check that out and donate what you can. I hope you and your comrades are staying as safe as you can amidst all of this, and that also means taking steps to fight back against this corrupt and horrendous system. Solidarity and love, Ian. Hey, everybody. My name is Ian Matchett. This is a as yet totally unnamed Midwesterners mostly talk about leftist things podcast. We're coming to you pre-recorded from the Brick and Mortar Collective in Detroit, Michigan, along with some other places. First off, I'm just going to ask the other folks who are on the line to introduce themselves. Can you just say like, hey, your name, pronouns, and where you're calling from? Hey, this is Marcelle Bryant. I am, I use the pronouns she, her, hers, and I'm coming to you from Chesapeake, Virginia. Hi, this is Huayan Pham, she, her, hers, from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And yeah, my pronouns are he, him, and I'm in Detroit. Yeah, basically this podcast, which we will promise will eventually have a name, is going to just sort of be a casual conversation among left-wing folks, generally organizers, activists, focused kind of on a Midwestern, like, primary perspective, but with comrades from all over. Thanks for being here, Marcel. And basically going to be a space to talk about some of the real frustrations and hopes we have for left-wing organizing, stuff like today we're doing Biden slash Bernie campaigns, a lot of talk about nonprofits, probably revolutionary socialism, how much I hate the Atlantic. I think next week or the week after, we're going to talk about Harry Potter. So it's going to be all over the place. We're going to have low production values. Just want to cite that out of the gate because I refuse to buy a mic or equipment until I prove to myself that I will actually keep this up. So just bear with us. Hopefully the content carries you through. If not, I understand. And it's okay. Today, we're joined by Marcel and Hoyan to talk a bit about the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, some frustrations we had, some hopes we had. All of us were pro-Bernie during the primaries, but really just digging into the campaign a bit, and then the hard gear shift that was the Joe Biden apocalyptic black hole. I think that's a description of his campaign. It's relatively accurate. And so, yeah, we're just going to pretty much keep this pretty chill, start off talking about the Bernie Sanders campaign, and then go into our feelings on how the Biden shift went. Marshall, do you want to maybe just kind of start us off talking about, uh, since you directly worked for the campaign, kind of what your role was? And then, yeah, we can just go through basically what got us invested, overall thoughts, and then inevitably what went wrong and how we're feeling now. Do you want to start us off? Yes, definitely. So I joined the campaign in December of 2019. I joined the National Student Organizing Department as the National Student Organizing Desk. And basically, my role was to support students first and foremost, students who were in Super Tuesday states and help them organize their campuses for Bernie. Um, It was such an amazing experience. I worked with students from all over the country, including Florida, North Carolina, Maine, Oklahoma, so really all over the place. And again, it was such an amazing experience. It was too short, obviously, but uh, it it really was something that I'll, I'll cherish for a lifetime. And it was for a candidate that I truly believed in. So it made it all worth it. 
Yeah, I helped volunteer within that program, uh, and we checked yes, in. Yes, you did. And it was a lot of fun uh, getting into, like, just, it, I know it rekindled some of my hope. Uh, I've been organizing with students for, like, six years, and not that I was completely hopeless, but it was just really great to hear people who were just jumping in, doing what they could, like the story repeating of, like, I have never done this before, but I feel like I have to do something, very much being a theme. Um, that yeah, I found really inspiring as I got engaged. Um, but yeah, like what what kind of brought us to the campaign? How are we feeling about it? Any any thoughts that are really kind of still sitting with you? It's been a little a little bit, so hopefully there's like a mixture of both positive and negative. Yeah, um, I do just want to name the fact that uh, you did serve as a mentor for um, the the National Student Organizing Program, which was absolutely amazing. We were looking for experienced organizers to help guide our student volunteers as they tried to, you know, navigate figuring out how best to organize folks on their campus. And so that was, um, you know, so something that really had a huge impact on our students. So I just want to say that I really appreciate that. Yeah, it was, it was a good time, like I said. <laughs> Hoyan, what was your experience? With uh, Vernon Payne? Yeah, just kind of from your seat. From, your from seat. my seat. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I obviously supported in 2016, but I had not done any electoral work or anything by then. And then in 2018, I ended up working with a lot of the Bernie staff in Abdul El Sayed's election for, for gubernatorial campaign. And then I think, you know, going out of the last election cycle and sort of looking at the primary and everything, I think it, a lot of it sort of boils down to what you, or I forget who said this, but about how it really was a place for people who had never done stuff before to feel like they could organized to feel like they had a movement to join. And, you know, as much as I have conflict with electoral politics and how I engage with it as an organizer, I do think that that's a really big thing to take out of the campaign, right? How many young people, especially how many new organizers felt like it was a place they could come into. And I feel like that's something that's often missing from our movement spaces. Yeah, I, I think that's something that like, as frustrated as I get with electoralism, I think that the number one frustration I have with everything else is that we're so gatekeepy and ready to throw people out that like, yeah, it was really hopeful to be in a space where it's like, Hey, you don't get it. That's fine. Let's figure it out. <laughs> As opposed to like, you're done. We're never talking to you again, which is sometimes, you know, not entirely the vibe, but can quickly become the vibe in certain spaces. I'm curious, Marshall, last time we talked, you had a lot of thoughts around how things were going, the positives and negatives of the campaign and just like the, the kind of abrupt conclusion. I don't know if you want to walk us through sort of like that experience on your end. Yeah. So um, it definitely was just a whirlwind experience. Again, it was only like a few months that I worked on the campaign and we did so much work. And I mean, the positives, like both of you mentioned, was just the the energy from, you know, the folks who were supporting. And again, it was people from all different walks of life, folks who had been, you know, really active in politics, folks who you know, were totally disinterested in politics, but saw something in Bernie. So there was just so much passion that we we saw on a daily basis. And that was so inspiring. And it really kept us going, especially towards the end when it was, it was clear that there wasn't really a, a path forward. 
But in the same vein, we did talk about, Ian, the fact that there were some clear mistakes that were made on the campaign. And I think that, you know, folks on the campaign would agree that, you know, one thing that we definitely could have done is had a better African-American Black community outreach program. I know that with the National Student Organizing Program, it was kind of divided into PWIs, which are predominantly white institutions. And we also had a separate HBCU program because an HBCU stands for Historically Black College or University. And the reason that we felt like it was really important to go on to HBCU campuses specifically was because it's very clear that, you know, young people really connected with with Bernie. But also most people would say that Bernie kind of had an issue connecting with the Black community. So we thought that it would be a really good idea to have a separate program that really plugged into the HBCU community and the uniqueness that is an HBCU campus and made sure that we um, organized with them. But of course, towards the end of the campaign, right before the Michigan and Mississippi primary, there was a, a bit of an issue with, again, specifically Bernie's Black outreach. He was actually scheduled to give a big speech on race and civil rights in Mississippi, but instead decided to to go to Michigan to campaign there because it was kind of clear that he wasn't going to, to win the, the Mississippi primary. So I think that that was kind of the last straw with the Black community. A lot of, you know, Black voters were kind of turned off by the fact that he didn't take the time to to sit there and really speak about race, which was something that a lot of people had really been wanting him to do. And it's funny to me because, you know, clearly Bernie is such a an activist, especially when it comes to civil rights. I mean, he marched with Dr. King. He was arrested for sit-ins when he was at the University of Chicago. So it's not a question of him being authentically interested in issues in the Black community. It was really an issue of him expressing that. And so that was kind of frustrating just from, you know, a lowly staffer's kind of point of view, especially being, you know, a Black woman. I really, really wanted him to kind of talk about these things that he had been spending literally his entire life, you know, fighting for. But, you know, again, lowly staffer. So I have absolutely no idea what the strategy was in not addressing that. But, you know, I think that that's, that was one of the biggest downfalls of the campaign, honestly. Yeah, I think that that is pretty clear to most of us on the left who were watching the campaign in different ways. I think some of us tried to make more excuses for it, but I think I definitely also had points, like even from a white dude perspective of being like, you're just not quite getting this. Like you, you don't get how this looks or mm-hmm. you don't get how this feels. And I don't entirely, but I get an, I can see enough of this that you shouldn't be like blowing some of this off. And yeah, it just, there were some moments that confused me in the campaign as far as where he would choose to only center class or only speak about race amongst like seven Absolutely. issues. Um, right. Where it, it seems like he got it, but he he wouldn't he wouldn't take the time often enough to sit down and be like, I I'm going to dig into this now. In the same way he would dig into like class and the way he would dig into the way class affects multiple different things. Um, he just didn't really do that yeah. with race. And uh, one thing that sticks into my mind, and honestly, it was kind of a point where I was like, oh, he's not going to be able to come back from this, was the uh, CNN debate with him and and Joe Biden. Um, That was, you know, they were socially distanced and everything was the little debate that they had. 
And the moderators specifically asked both of them, you know, they asked Biden, why do you have an issue with the Latinx community? And they asked Bernie, why do you have an issue with the the Black community really connecting with them? And, you know, Bernie just did not directly address it. And, you know, that was a moment where I was like, oh, my goodness, that that was basically your last chance to really take the opportunity and, and talk about, you know, how your policies would really help the black community. I mean, it, to me, it was it was such a question that could have really been um, used to to frame his campaign in a positive way and really connect with folks. But you know, again, it, it just wasn't done. Yeah, and I, I think I think it also played a bit into Joe Biden's campaign hands. Uh, in that, like Joe Biden, more has like a long term relationship with some leaders in the black community that gives him a deeper reach. Yes. But then if you mm-hmm. dig it all into his policies, it just erodes. Like before we hopped on the line, Hoyan was saying, the more I research him, the more I, I kind of hate him. And yeah, it was kind of like the flip problem. Bernie struggled up front and struggled to build those relationships. But then if you dug into his policies, it was like, oh, fuck, this guy's like here and doing the thing. Whereas Biden is like Absolutely. Been behind every horrible policy. Hoyan, do you have any feels on the kind of like failings of the campaign where we can keep talking about it? I just didn't want to just go back and forth between the two of us. Yeah, no, I'm still trying to pull some thoughts together. I think that from what I've just like digging into the policy and all that, it's always interesting to kind of look at (laughs) campaigns and also realize that people, a lot of people don't dig into policy as much as you would think. Like a lot of people never really looked into it. um, And I don't think that's because they like couldn't understand it or anything. But just I think the one thing that I learned from working on the one campaign that I did work on was that I was really surprised about how little people seem to put an emphasis on policy and more about the actual person. And I feel like that was always something, you know, Biden emphasized as well. He had almost no policy that was good. Actually, I don't know any of his policies that are good again, because I, you know, <laughs> have so little faith in him to do anything correctly. But he was always emphasizing personality as like Uncle Joe. And he put on sunglasses one time with Obama. And that was sort of always the main <laughs> plot point moving forward. And, and that seemed to resonate really strongly with folks in a way that, you know, I was, I guess I was surprised by. Yeah, I think it's interesting also the way the media really played into that too. They would talk about Joe Biden as being electable and being like a really strong candidate and never say anything else. But Bernie Sanders, they would kind of just go through these narratives of this is the problem, this is the problem, this is the problem, as opposed to like he won three states. Like, we can't talk about that at all. We can't, we can't engage with like the fact that some people might be excited about him for a reason. They're not just pathological. It's very surreal looking back at some of those clips and just like seeing him compared to Nazis. And it's, he just wants healthcare and like for people to not be in debt for their entire lives. It's a really fucking low bar for a society to like strive for. But Joe Biden, like you said, put on sunglasses and he stood next to Obama doing horrible things for eight years. So why not, I guess? I don't know. Are there any other like kind of big, uh, I touched a little bit in that, what I was just saying around just how the media sort of played up these two, like how Biden didn't have any policies, but kind of had a relationship with people from being in the public eye. Um, And then Bernie had less of that relationship. And then they very much attacked him on very small parts of his policies without ever really naming the implications of something like Medicare for all and being honest about it publicly. Um, Mm -hmm. and then they never really challenged Joe Biden on like any of his history, um, which we'll get into some, some more that when we talk about Biden, but just 
yeah, like how did y'all like experience that media narrative? I ended up yelling at my TV and getting a Twitter, I think was my reaction. And just, yeah, volunteering <laughs> more and donating more. But <laughs> yeah, did you all kind of have experiences like watching that narrative? And like, how did you feel as those like took shape and like kind of were repeated as ad nauseum? Yeah, I mean, for me being on the campaign, you know, I really couldn't express publicly how I was feeling about the media. You know, I spent a lot of time venting to to friends and family about that. Um, but I mean, it was it was just so blatant and so obvious, and it it really was insidious in a lot of ways because it, it was just it was such a concerted effort by the media to paint Bernie as unelectable and radical, which of course in our circle that's that's a positive thing, but you know in mainstream America that's certainly scary. So it was it was very frustrating, and you know on the campaign we really did our best to just keep plugging away and keep talking to folks and keep, you know, trying to let folks know that these policies, what Bernie was proposing, are basic fundamental human rights. I mean, making sure that folks have a living wage, that's not radical. That's what we should be doing in the most, you know, wealthy country on earth, talking about making sure that folks have access to you know, college without having to to go into debt and actually canceling that student debt. You know, I think that all of these things, all of these policies that Bernie championed, and again, he had been doing for his entire career, his entire life, I think that they were all things that, you know, deep down people kind of understood are should should be provided in America. But I think that a lot of fear and also a lot of corporate greed really, really made it so this there was a narrative that Bernie was too radical and unelectable and he was just going to push America too far too fast. Yeah, I think that kind of thing is always really frustrating for me because it's like I'm just wondering if people read or if they have an understanding of what goes on in other countries that isn't capitalist, Western, imperialist world. Um, and I think that, you know, like obviously – Joe Biden is not what we want. And people were really just pushing the message of he's electable. There's that whole wave of everybody dropping out and then endorsing him and then the media having a huge party about it. And it's frustrating for me to have to read that and look at it and realize how far we are from what we want to be. And even for Bernie, right? Like There are so many things that I did not think were great about him or his campaign or what he was fighting for and he definitely could be pushed a lot further left as well and the media really painting him as so radical takes away so much of what has already been fought for by other people and really paints him as you know everything he's doing as really impossible even though it's happening um and just it's just not happening in the U.S. Yeah no I think my personal favorite moment was like, and this is also just due to my politics, but just like the obsession that came up with a small island nation to the south of the United States uh, that uh, Bernie Sanders mentioned, and I will not name because Zoom has cut out two times, was used, like a clip of him uh, supporting this nation was used as like an example of how he liked Fidel Castro, where what he was praising was a mass literacy program and mass healthcare programs. And if you cannot talk openly about countries doing things better than the United States can, then what are we doing here? Like, that's just enforcing, like it was just a, a public, publicly enforcing propaganda from the Cold War 
that we can't admit were lies. It was just very surreal. It was, and the, the fact that they also had a clip of Obama saying almost word for word the same thing. The exact same thing. And then like the media wouldn't play that. It's like, okay, well then like what, are, like, I don't know. I understand it's going to be bullshit. And we're going to talk a lot about the Biden transition in a second here. But when people are like, you lost the primary, I just have this feeling of like, no, it's a fucking rigged game. And we didn't overwhelmingly defeat you and therefore lost the rigged game. Like, there's a difference between that and a fair fight. And I, I think that when when everything like that gets pulled up, it's just... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of dumbfounded by the idea that it's a democracy. And like, it doesn't mean we shouldn't engage and shouldn't do something. But it's just sort of like, don't don't come at me with like Joe Biden won an election. That's the shit that annoys me the most. You know, I grew up with an older sister. I mean, she's not... This is a loose analogy. But she would always cheat at all the games that we played and then she would win every single time, right? <laughs> and when I think about these elections it's literally like how is it a win like how are you throwing this in my face you made up all the rules you did everything that you wanted to do of course you're gonna win the game like I never had a chance at winning this game if you're just making up shit along the way and you know pretending that it was there the whole time I think the fact that the Brady campaign even got that close says a lot about the potential of what we can do yeah I I just think back to the fact that obviously um, you know, Bernie won the early states. And then when it came to South Carolina, that was really when we saw the the tide shift. And I think that it's really important to mention that in the Super Tuesday states, the Biden campaign literally had no campaign infrastructure. They weren't campaigning there. They had really put all of their time and energy into South Carolina. And so by the time Super Tuesday had come around, he had won South Carolina and the rest of the Democratic establishment had dropped out basically and consolidated around him. So I think that it's really important to to name that when we talk about the election being rigged and, you know, again, the party kind of making up their own rules. I think that that's really important to to note that there was a concerted effort to make sure that Bernie could not go past Super Tuesday really with any kind of strength or force. Yeah, and I think like that leads us right into our discussion on Biden. Let's preface a little bit with that narrative arc. Bernie wins the first three states. Iowa is a clusterfuck that we will probably not know the truth about for 15 years. Then there'll be a documentary about how maybe Bernie could have won that if there hadn't been a bunch of bullshit. And then Bernie wins the next two states, including Nevada, the most diverse state to that point, gets only negative coverage the whole fucking time. Uh, at best, there's a fear in the eyes of some of the presenters. MSNBC, uh, right after Nevada, is prime prime viewing. But there's never any positive analysis outside of official Bernie supporters on a like panel on CNN or something. None of the anchors are talking about the campaign positively. It's all negative coverage. It's all, who can stop this man? The, conser- the They don't say conservatives. They say centrists or moderates need to rally together and come up with an alternative. Biden manages to win any non-white middle-class support uh, in South Carolina. And therefore the party seems to basically be like, cool, well, none of you can do that. So we pick him. Obama may or may not have called some people. It sounds like he at least talked to them on the day that they dropped out, whether that was to thank them for their service or to maybe play a role in that. Again, probably not going to know until Obama writes a memoir or somebody digs into his personal papers. And lo and behold, Joe Biden, who came in fourth, fifth, and second in the first three states, wins a state and then is basically crowned by the media. His opponents drop out with the exception of Bloomberg, 
a reviled billionaire and Warren who just wanted to stay in it for the love of the game. I'm not totally in on the like, this is Warren's fault approach, but also probably didn't help. And then we have Super Tuesday where Biden did not campaign, did not run in those states, but tens of millions of dollars of pro coverage did from the mainstream media. And oh, look, Bernie uh, lost some states and therefore is no longer viable. And the entire media landscape after that is he should drop out. All framed around this idea of electability, all framed around this idea of Donald Trump is the greatest enemy. And then we head into the COVID primaries after Michigan and possibly including Michigan based on how many people got sick immediately afterward. And they basically shut down the primary by holding people hostage and saying, if you don't suspend your campaign, then we're going to keep having primaries and people will die. And it'll be on you, Bernie Sanders. And that was just a maddening two weeks that then concluded with us being in a global pandemic. And I don't think it was good for any of our mental health or the health of the movement. <laughs> I mean, like any, any thoughts on that overall arc in y'all's lives? I'm sure there was a lot on the campaign that was pretty surreal. Sorry, I'm just trying to think back to that time because, yes, it was a whirlwind. It was absolutely insane. Yeah, and it happened so fast, too. And I think we were just expected to kind of just, like, swallow it, right? (laughs) With all the stuff of, like, oh, Biden was losing and his campaign sucks. And everyone was like, yeah, you know, we won't have to vote for him, luckily, but I can't believe he's still running. Nobody wanted him to run. And I feel like people just conveniently forgot the eight years that he was vice president and the Obama campaign spent most of their time trying to shut him up and make sure he didn't speak. And suddenly everyone wants this man to speak for America. It just, I mean, none of that lines up and makes sense in my head. And so quickly after, all of a sudden people are dropping one by one, people are getting promised all these cabinet seats and everyone is pushing for Biden. Yeah, it feels kind of like the combination of Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, like the the horrible policy record of Hillary Clinton with the charisma and enthusiasm of Jeb Bush and his campaign. You mean Jeb Bush, exclamation point? Yeah, Jeb, (laughs) it feels like Jeb. Yeah, I'm just, I was was dumbfounded throughout the election that he was even in the race. Every time he spoke in the debates, it would just be like, is he going to say something wild that doesn't make any sense? Or is he going to avoid talking about a policy that's horrible? Those were the options. I'm impressed by the lack of other options centrism came up with, I guess. Buttigieg was horrible. Lobachar is, again, basically telling people you can't dream of anything. But now we have a candidate, yeah, who's who's offering us literally nothing and then trying to guilt us mm-hmm. into electing him. It's absurd. Yeah. And I think that was the worst part of the election, too, because everyone was like, choose your player. And everyone else was like, well, I don't want any of these players. Yeah, I, I don't know. I am, I am dumbfounded by the just, yeah, by, by the sudden transition, the ability of centrists to coalesce, I guess, like, not having principles and basically just having loyalty to the letter D helps in that scenario. Like, mm. I think it's been, I guess, on the flip side, somewhat comical to have people, like, online and in real life be like, well, Bernie endorsed Biden. It's like, I don't give a fuck. Like, that cool. Yeah, have a good, have a, Bernie can vote for him. That's great for Bernie. Bernie can go do stuff with Biden. That's, that's fine. Um, y'all wanted this candidate, and now you got him. And, you know, some of us might vote for him, but no young person, you know, precious few young people are going to donate 15 hours a week, hundreds of dollars out of their pocket, and, like, the unlimited media coverage that the online space gives you through November. And that's your choice. I hope the old people will vote for him, and I hope you'll get what you want. But, yeah, you wrote us off. (laughs) That's what happened. The worst part about all of it too was just everyone endorsing him I think absolutely I wasn't necessarily that surprised when Bernie endorsed Biden but it was really 
frustrating and disappointing in a way because it sort of solidified the argument that everyone should just be standing behind blue no matter who and and voting and and feeding us this message so strongly even though there are other choices besides voting and besides voting for Biden and and for Biden to spend basically his entire life at this point really pushing back against so much of what I believe in and what a lot of you know what people I I fight for believe in and then for people to say oh but like all of a sudden right all of a sudden in his history of never being pushed left suddenly Biden is going to come out and be our savior against this person Donald Trump even though some of their policies are actually very similar and that to me it, it just doesn't make sense yeah I will say just in defense of Bernie um and again take this how you will but I think that ultimately Bernie and I think a lot of people um, really feel like Donald Trump is such a threat to this country, to human decency, um, you know, just basically everything that, you know, even though Biden is clearly not, not a, I would say even a good candidate, at this point um you know i think biden is alive <laughs> yes i think that the the reality is, is that bernie really thinks that anybody is better than trump and i also think that he does believe you know i mean he obviously is staying on the ballot in the remaining states he said that he does want to you know try to get as many delegates as possible so that at the convention, we will have some kind of power, some kind of say over what the party platform is. So ultimately, I really think that the reason that Bernie, you know, dropped out, obviously he didn't see a path forward. It was something that he really deliberated on. I mean, there was this very weird time in the campaign where we were like, what what should we be doing? Should we be telling people to, you know, go ahead and vote? Literally, we we had no idea what we we should be doing because Bernie was really taking that time to decide and try to figure out if there's any way forward. And I think he really agonized over it. And I mean, I I think that if we we think about it, it's very clear that Bernie really cares about this country. It's very clear that we had a candidate, I'd say once in a lifetime, maybe once in our history, a candidate who really cared about the people and who really, um, you know, worked for the people. And I think that he really agonized over having to let people down. I definitely understand people being very upset and kind of feeling betrayed by him immediately, you know, dropping out and then turning around and endorsing Biden. But again, I think that he truly believes that there's something to be said about Donald Trump being the biggest threat to the future of this nation. And so by any means necessary, he feels like it's it's time to to get Trump out of office. And again, I know that that's not ideal, but I think that that's the reality of the situation. And ultimately, I mean, Bernie is as much of an outsider as possible, but he's still a politician. So, you know, he has to play the game in, in some respects. I think there's also, in addition to like the debate over is Biden unnecessary evil to stop Trump? I think there's a whole debate we could have probably a whole other episode. But I think there's also a piece of like, I think once you run in the Democratic primary, in order to avoid all of your supporters and all of the momentum you built being kind of attacked on the basis of a lack of unity and on the basis of a, kind of on being a nadir effect, Bernie has to endorse. Like I, I think that's the, kind of the, the rules of that mm-hmm. game in a way. 
And I can understand him not doing that, but I think like when I'm looking at the way he's played this, the the momentum he's built for left-wing ideas, I think that for him not to endorse would undermine that, I think, with a lot of people that we still want to reach. So I'm not against that tactically. I'm just, I'm more against the like kind of like clubbing over the head with that endorsement that I and others I know uh, have experienced from people in our lives. Definitely. (laughs) I do have a question a little bit around the issue of policy. I have experienced folks kind of being like, well, now it's time to influence the platform. Let's get to the convention and really push for for policy changes that we need. And, And there's been a big push in the media to start this narrative around him being FDR that maybe we could frame some of this around. But yeah, I I think just the question of how much do you think these policy announcements matter? Do you think that there's like something strategic there? How are y'all feeling about this narrative around the most progressive candidate ever that we're hearing from the Biden campaign? And it's sycophants is a strong word, but supporters is perhaps a kinder one. Yeah, I mean, I saw the the list that was released. I'm not really sure what that was, but just of the people who would be on his different committees, right? So like AOC on the climate committee and um, I know Abdul was on the healthcare committee. That honestly, it did not change any way about how I felt about his campaign or how I felt about him or how I feel about, you know, not supporting him in November. But it definitely was framed as he's doing these things and he's conceding for us. But when I look at it too, a lot of those people are being forced to, um, I think there's, or something I've, I've seen a lot in electoral politics, there are people who are coming in and really thinking like, hey, like I can really like change some shit in here. And then they come out and they're like, oh no, like I, like I couldn't, it didn't work. And, you know, even for AOC, I think people have always really been so excited about her and her politics you know, at at some point, so I've been like, yeah, like that was great that she said that some of the stuff she said was good. She's made some good points here. I'm glad she's, I'm glad people love her. And also I've seen how she's changed some of her messaging already. And to me, there's no, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was was just agreeing. (laughs) Oh (laughs) yeah. I've seen how she's changed her messaging already. And I think there, that we are not often strong enough in the strong messaging that we have. Um, that's backed by people and backed by history and backed by, you know, the, the people who have been fighting at the front lines for so long. And we will always, we've all, people in electoral yeah. politics have always yeah. ended up just caving to centralism. And I don't see how this could be really any different. Not because I don't have hope, but my hope is somewhere else. Uh, it sounds like marketing to me. I remember the, the before the 2016 election, there was this moment where like, how will Hillary Clinton pivot towards the general? And I'm like, you mean lie? A 60-year-old politician doesn't change their views in the last four months before an election. They just lie publicly to get votes and then do what they were going to do anyways. And I've tried to grapple with like, what is the line on what he would have to do to dissuade me from that? And I saw the announcement about some of those committees. It's like having a bunch of progressives sit in a committee with no power, but you're hiring Larry Summers and banking executives to be in your cabinet, I'm not particularly believing you. (laughs) Yeah, like Abdul writes an amazing policy uh, with the help of a bunch of community members and it's, it's a really powerful moment. But then if Larry Summers doesn't leave any money over for that climate policy, it doesn't fucking matter that you wrote it down and that we voted for a politician who said that they liked that piece of paper. So I, that's where I've been like kind of caught up. It's just like, don't, I don't know, just be honest. If it's all about getting Trump out of office, just say that. Don't try to it just sounds like fucking lies. You'll probably get more young people just being really honest about what you what you want and what you offer us, as opposed to trying to portray that you now suddenly give a shit. 
No, I mean, I we had talked about this briefly earlier, and no threats here, but Joanne is, is definitely closer to being dead than he is to being pushed left. I just don't think that there's any way that he's going to come up with a policy that's going to be helpful for people in my community. Like I'm still, you know, I'm I'm watching and I want to make sure that I'm doing what's right for the people that I work with. And I am really not seeing any evidence here. It is astounding how bad he is at this with the amount of money and energy that's now behind him. And I think they've literally written articles that are like, all he has to do is stay alive. The best campaign for Joe Biden is to not be seen publicly, which is possibly true, but also... Um, there's a lot of evidence that being seen publicly gets you elected, <laughs> even if it's not even always positive. Just Donald Trump being on TV, even with the media hating him, got him the visibility that got him elected. Um, exactly. And it just, yeah. I don't know. He definitely needs to fire his tech team. Absolutely. And probably his campaign manager and get somebody who knows how to use fucking Zoom. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. It's infuriating to be lectured on like centrists being realists who know how to get things done and are like the real political operatives. And then just watching them faceplant into like sandpaper day after day uh, is just, it's, yeah, it's kind of enraging. And it's just like, oh, you fucking don't know what you're talking about. That's cool. I'll just never listen to you again. It's an absurd candidacy at this point. It's funny to me, every couple of weeks, Joe Biden, I mean, pops up and then he's tweeting something that he thinks is super radical or super um, like a huge hit to Donald Trump. You know, did he, he just started calling him President Tweety or something like that. And all the all the Democrats were like, oh, yeah, like Joe Biden, like that's so funny that's so amazing like we can't wait until you're in the white house and i'm like what the fuck like yeah you stole from it first of all cultural appropriation from an amazing cartoon character tweety bird and also like what are you even doing here and <laughs> it's not just him right it's everything about his campaign it's his policy i saw something last night where he said that palestinian people needed to be stopped being let off the hook for their choices like what does that even fucking mean like if palestinian people had ever had a choice maybe they wouldn't have the state of Israel on their land killing their people. Like, I don't know what mm, he's yes. trying to say in the things that he's saying. Um, and nothing about his policy or his Twitter or anything that he's doing makes sense. And so it's funny to me that I'm basically, you know, like there's a potato that's being put in front of me and they're like, but you have to vote for him. Otherwise, you're a bad American. And we're all like, well, that's a potato. Like that person is not really going to do a good job. Like history is not a fork in the road. It it's again marxist but it's dialectical like the choices affect each other and affect future choices um and so i think like just electing joe biden doesn't stop donald trump if you elect a candidate who can't do the job and doesn't have a plan to make things better guess how much more dangerous fascism is about to get if they're the only ones Absolutely. who appear to be competent and the only ones who speak to the needs of anybody even if that's just a small group of very angry privileged white folks those people have weapons and you've demobilized everyone else by telling them to fuck off and go home because their dreams are impossible. That's a really bad recipe to start with. And like, right. what I keep getting pulled back to with Biden is just this idea of Hindenburg on the eve of Hitler taking power. He's an aging general who's respected by the center, who's tolerated by the left. Everyone pulls together to get him elected or a lot of people pull together to get him elected. But he's pretty incapable of running the government at that point. He doesn't have any plan to fix the Weimar state as it declines. And so then you have basically the Nazis and the communists fighting in the street and Hindenburg eventually makes a deal with the Nazis to make peace with the side that the conservatives are more comfortable with than the left Absolutely. and pulls Hitler into government. And I, I don't think that Biden's going to make a deal to make Trump some sort of weird chancellor for life, but 
I think that there is a danger that liberals will choose to side with fascists given an absolute choice between communism and fascism or enough of them will that it will be a dangerous choice. And I think that you don't avoid Donald Trump and fascism by electing an incompetent candidate with no ideas. You had best put it off. And that's going to get more dangerous over time. I think there's this illusion that you can stop these things by doing nothing or returning to how it was in like 2012. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know. I'm not sure what year we're supposed to be dreaming of because they've all been dog shit. Yeah, it, it just kind of dumbfounds me that you think you can stop history, which I think is like a, a grand liberal illusion at this point. Each side's dreaming of like this weird past that never existed. And the liberal one is one where capitalism helped people and everyone was happy and there, there wasn't oppression. And that just has never fucking existed. Joe Biden is in a step towards a better world he's at best a step to like pause yeah i think he demobilizes a lot of people that need to be working but to avoid things getting much worse um and that scares the hell out of me well that's the thing that is the worst part about it all right i mean besides the really shitty things he would do if he were president which i don't think he's gonna win because the second he gets up, up on stage with trump trump is gonna just completely bulldoze him um but I mean, he just, he is really making people, like, you know, the message that's being passed on, especially, I think, to young to young folks. I mean, I'm 24, so I'm also, like, a young folk, but to, to teens and to people who are younger than me is, if you don't vote for him, he's the only way, or if you don't fight for all you have to do is get in line behind him. And the demobilization, I think, that that has, and just the discouraging of people to realize that, you know, their dreams are shit and not possible is actually really, really harmful, right? To, to, to be met with the idea that you believe in something that's not real and can never be real, like communism and socialism and, you know, anarchism don't exist. Um, and it's only, you can only be a somewhat lukewarm centrist. Otherwise, nothing you want will ever happen. And to me, that's actually really, really damaging and something that is I guess disappointing to see and and how much you know Marshall you were mentioning how much people were really like so upset and and crying over over burning losing and that's it's always so hard to see when people believe in something so strongly that they know it's right right like all the stuff that we need universal healthcare we need all these things and they are the right thing to do and to be told by literally all of America or you know the powerful America and the media they own that that's not possible is really damaging one thing in there is like you're saying these dreams we have of communism of socialism hell it's the dream of just like not being actively in debt or not having health health payments every month like the the dreams aren't even that big the dream is like stuff that that exists elsewhere in the world (laughs) and and like a lot of countries Mm -hmm. are figuring it the fuck out (laughs) they aren't like yeah i I want a communist future but i also like i'd be willing to like fight for healthcare. Um, and it just seems like even that dream is like we're just repeatedly slapped down about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if any of you saw that video. I think it was in, I don't know, maybe somewhere in the UK um, where they were telling people about American healthcare and people like could not believe how expensive it was. <laughs> there was one line where they're like, oh, so if you're poor, you just die then. And everyone was like, yeah, that, that's basically it. And there's no way that that can be the future that people want or think is the only thing possible. But that's what Joe Biden wants. this is the future joe biden wants yeah one other thing in this that kind of is very closely related is this sort of idea it's not even a typical election where there's sort of two visions or parties running like there's actively this descent into darkness that i think we thought was happening in 2008 um i was pretty young then but it seems like looking back 
That seems like that was happening. But it seems like far more real now in the U.S. empire on the whole seems to be declining. And there's a, there's a clear need for universal health care in the form of the COVID crisis, just screaming out for it. But no one will fight for it. Joe Biden actively keeps saying he doesn't want to politicize the fucking crisis. But everything calls out to be politicized. This huge divide between the, the rich and the poor, Jeff Bezos possibly becoming a trillionaire as we reach 30% unemployment. Not only do we need a better future, but just that like the center can't hold, that things are going to collapse. I, I don't know what they expect to have happen by doing nothing about that or not talking about that. Like, do you think people are going to get, maybe we're just rehashing the same points. I'm just, it seems like there's n- never, at least in the past, maybe 50 years been a moment where there's more giant flashing warning signs and the Democrats are just sort of being, doing that like dog in the fire room thing, being like, this is fine. If we just elect Joe, this is fine. If we're feeling good on that, um, I did, we've been talking for a while. Are you all cool hanging around for a second? I just want to talk a little bit about like the actual voting prospects and like, will young people vote for this guy? Yeah, definitely. Hoyan's muted, but I'm assuming that's a positive mute. Oh yeah, I'm good. Okay. (laughs) I think you both talked about this a little bit, but I'm really fascinated by a couple of things in here. One is Joe Biden seems to be a test as to how far you can push the blue no matter who lesser of two evils line before it becomes parody. Um, mm-hmm. And then within that, I think just sort of like this issue of the guilt trip as a strategy to turning people out. I have a couple of things here in the notes, but it like I think one of the things that's really rung true for me is this idea of like young people at this point, and like we're we're starting to get a little older, but still young. And like every time we've been asked to vote for the lesser of two evils, things have gotten worse. And I think that like that is a declining tactic <laughs> by the center. Um, right. And just, yeah, how do you all feel about this guilt trip approach? How have you experienced it or how has it like been coming up in your life? Yeah, um, I will definitely say that I see it all over the place. I think that it's terrible to tell folks since you didn't get the candidate that you want, like you have to vote for this candidate. And if you don't vote for this candidate, then every single thing, bad thing that happens in the future is on you. Like we, as a generation, mostly we were very much pro Bernie. And so, you know, we, we put in all of our time and our energy and our hopes into finally getting a candidate who really represents us and mostly and uh, you know what we want to see for the future and so for you to expect for people to just get over that and kind of fall in line to me is it's unrealistic but also it's it's a pretty shitty thing to do you know you you can't ask people you can't I feel like it's kind of gaslighting at this point. Like you can't ask people to fall in line behind a candidate who they worked so hard against and then yell at them and tell them like, oh, well, you know, if you don't do this, then basically the world's going to end. Like that's that's just not how it works. Um, you know, people express their opinions. And so I think that, you know, though I will be voting in November, I don't expect other people to do the same thing. I know that there are people who, you know, took Bernie dropping out a lot worse than I did, even though I worked on the campaign and, you know, wholeheartedly believed in his candidacy. But I know that there are people who are not going, like, no matter what, there's nothing that you can say, there's nothing that you can do that's going to make them vote for for Biden in November. Like, it's just not going to happen. 
And, you know, I, I constantly hear from older folks in my family and, you know, just around me, they, they just cannot believe that, you know, there are people who are not going to vote in November, or they cannot believe that there are people who are going to like write in Bernie in November. And I just think that it's probably like generational thing. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, to, to a point that we've, we've talked about before, that people are fed up. And, you know, this, the same way of doing things is not going to work. Sooner or later, people are going to rebel. Okay, you tell us that we can't have like these, you know, basic necessities and, you know, things that we really need in life. Okay, well, fine. Like, we're going to just mess up the system. We're going to blow it up. You can't expect people to continue to basically fall in line when when you are constantly pushing them to their limits. To your point too, I mean, Joe Biden keeps coming out every other week saying, if you don't believe in me, then don't vote for me. Don't right? vote. And he right. keeps on coming up with all these different examples. Like he's really trying to cover all his bases at this point. He's like, if you believe in the Green New Deal, maybe you shouldn't be voting for me. If you believe that I was a rapist, I wouldn't vote for me either. Like at this point, I feel like I'm being actively told in all these ways that actually like maybe... I shouldn't be doing this, but there is really such a strong pressure of you're letting these people down. And I keep on seeing all these white people on Twitter. Um, I know I keep mentioning Twitter, but that's all I do. Saying like, I'm voting for Biden for all of my vulnerable friends or my marginalized friends. And I'm like, don't vote for Biden for me or don't <laughs> vote for Biden. For, like, are they asking you to do it? If they are, then yeah, do it. But don't project what you want um, onto other people because you don't want to stand up for what they actually need. That is so funny because I have friends and associates who are not able to vote for whatever reason. And they're like, literally, do not vote for me. Like, that's just really funny to me that there's that whole, you know, juxtaposition. Like, white people are saying, no, I'm doing this for you. Meanwhile, the people who they're supposedly doing it for are like, no, please don't. Like, absolutely do not do it. <laughs> right. We're like, please fucking don't. Fucking don't do it. And they're like, no, you know what? No, don't don't even worry about it. I think I'm going to do it. <laughs> well, and it's, it's very much used, like, as an intra-white person thing. It's very much like, I'm woke, and therefore I'm voting for Joe Biden, despite the fact that he stands against all woke things. <laughs> And here's my reason. No, I haven't actually talked to any marginalized person about this. No, I don't actually have like a reason why Joe Biden will inherently make things better. I'm just trying to make you feel bad enough that you vote other white person. Like it, it, it seems pretty absurd as like a, an approach when Joe Biden has objectively done horrible things to almost every community. They like, I was on a call recently where somebody was like, yeah, we have to vote for Joe Biden because of immigrant detention centers. I'm like, he fucking built oh. Like, fuck you. Wow. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, uh, like, I, right. Three million deportations. Yeah. Like there's, there are reasons to vote for him, but you've got to do better than naming things. He's actively been on the wrong side of his whole career and has hurt millions of people. Like, yeah, foreign policy. He voted for the fucking Iraq war. He's responsible for the death of, at this point, millions of people in the Middle East. Like, I, I don't understand how you're making this. Like, there are a lot of people who will be hurt by Trump's presidency. And you can talk about that. You can't make an absolute statement that Joe Biden will not hurt a huge group of people as well. And it might be not be the same people. It might be people abroad as opposed to people locally, but you don't get to pick and choose those lives and you don't get to use that on their behalf right. uh, against like your other privileged friends. And I just, I'm fucking that. 
Yes. Right. And I just find that hard to believe. I mean, like I said before, I'm only 24 years old, right? Like I'm really a baby. And how can I be responsible for 200 years or whatever? How long has America been around? 1770s, whatever. Um, for all these centuries of American imperialism, whatever, like how, how can it all be resting on my individual shoulders? And if I don't do this one thing that you're forcing me to do, then it's all going to collapse. That does not make that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Oh, there's, I, I think there's the, the guilt trip in general, I think boils down to a couple of different paradigms. And there's like, there are legitimate differences. And there are reasons that I can see for voting for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. I just, I think you got to have a better reason than speaking on behalf of a group of people that you aren't a part of, or just this vague idea of radicals don't get it is very much. Yeah. I mean, for me too, and I'm, I'm sure you encountered that working on the campaign, uh, Marshall, but from the very beginning that Bernie was running, people were just so fucking eager to be like, but you're going to vote for Joe Biden. Like you're going to vote for blue. Yes. No matter who. Yes. I mean, it became a joke on the campaign when Bernie was doing really well. It was like, oh, can't wait to tell people to vote blue no matter who. Because I mean, that was constantly, you know, it was like Bernie is such a long shot. So yeah, be prepared. And I mean, obviously at the time we didn't think that it would actually come true. But now that a lot of the people that I know, honestly, were never you know, vote blue, no matter who they were like, no, I'm going to work for and vote for and, you know, volunteer for the candidate that I truly believe in. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to make any contingency plans. So, you know, now that's here, people are like, oh, no, but you said you would vote, you know, for whoever the nominee is. And, you know, a lot of people are like, no, I never said that you were saying that I never said that. So you're really going to have to do something amazing in order to get my support. And I mean, like we said earlier, Biden just isn't making enough of an effort. I think that a lot of what he's doing is very surface level. And I just don't think that young people, you know, the majority of people who were supporting Bernie, I do not think that they are going to fall for it. I mean, we're smarter than that. Sorry, but we are. Right. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, they forced us to be smart about it. Like we <laughs> were growing up in a time like a climate disaster. Um, we're seeing right. the impacts of a lot of, I mean, a lot of, I'm first gen. So a lot of us, a lot of people that I'm around are here because of American imperialism. Like there's so much Western imperialism and, and we're not, you know, like we have to grow up and be aware of all this stuff because we have no choice. Yeah. I, I just plus one, all of that. I think there's a way in which a lot of us came of age amidst like, I don't know, you have a whole generation that watched the hope and change with no policy positions or commitments, followed up by eight years of things kind of getting worse leading into Donald Trump. I don't see how you can think you can do this again without the hope and change and like have a good result with us. All we've ever seen is you trying to deceive us and it not going well. And we, we went for it a couple times. We voted a bunch. Um, we voted more than young people have pretty much ever. Like we're watching the same tape you are and we're not stupid. One other piece that we didn't talk about is the shift towards xenophobia that I think is incredibly dangerous from the Biden campaign. Oh yeah. As we have the COVID crisis uh, has been tied by the Trump administration initially mm. to China and not very intentionally to not Chinese people, but very <sighs> intent, like they're doing the dog whistle thing or the not so dog whistle thing with the racism this time. <laughs> um, Biden jumped right fucking on that train with his first campaign ad and just like they're, they're having a who can be more closely associated with China off, which I was not on the Biden 
train at all here, but I was dumbfounded with that first ad just being like, your approach is different racism. That's what you're going with for the general. Have you all been watching that transition? What are your feels on that? I saw the ad yeah. loosely. I mean, I started it and then I was like, oh, I can't. Like, this is not something that my eyes were meant to see. Um, it's It's really fucked. I mean, I think there's a lot that rolls into why people are so eager to attack China, right? Like they're saying safety and public health, but let's also make it xenophobic and anti-communist. And it's really frustrating. It's It makes me really angry. And also it's just not really helpful for, for his campaign at all. And I know that people in Michigan have, some of the folks I know in Michigan, um, and I guess more broadly, have trying to really push his campaign to stop the ad and say something about it and counter message to xenophobia and he hasn't done it yet so it's really interesting that that's something really simple that people are asking him to do like hey maybe joe um maybe you could not be a huge dick to a lot of people who live in america and who identify in this way and who are from china or from asia more generally um and he's already saying no like i can't do that sorry yeah i just find it really disturbing um and I mean, I think that Biden has a lot of issues with racism in in general. I think that he's a casual racist when it comes to a lot of things. You know, I remember him saying, I think that it might have been the 2008 Mm -hmm. campaign Mm -hmm. saying that basically people had never seen such a clean and, you know, upstanding and well-spoken guy, well, basically black guy like Obama. And I think that, I mean, obviously his policies over the years, both domestically and internationally, have been really harmful to people of color. And yeah, I mean, I think that, again, this is a man in his late 70s and dog doesn't change its spots or however the expression goes. So I think that deep down, he's the same guy that he's, he's always been. And I think that it is kind of a competition to see who's going to be able to kind of get this, I guess, the white vote, whether it's working class or, you know, middle class or whatever. I think that it's kind of this competition now after seeing how well Trump has done being a huge xenophobe and racist. I think it's a competition to see who can, you know, really get that vote in November. And I think it's absolutely disgusting. And again, just every time you turn around, even if you are open-minded like I am to trying to support whoever the Democratic nominee is going to be, clearly it's going to be Joe Biden, it makes it really, really hard, really hard to stomach voting for him. And I mean, yeah, I I don't even know what else to say. You try to be open-minded and you try to do what you feel is, is right, but then every time you turn around, um, you know, there's another reason for you to be like, oh, do I really want to do this? Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think all of us know this, but just to name this also, that this is coming amidst a wave of anti-Asian American violence <laughs> that is targeting basically all people of East Asian descent inside the United States, as well as abroad. Um, it's part of a generalized trend that we're seeing uh, from Trump supporters, from scared people just in general. They're being mobilized by this hateful rhetoric. And these choices by the Biden campaign and and the Trump campaign, to be sure, are coming amidst a new wave of actual violence against people in the United States. And I think there's also a danger of it stepping into a wave of violence against people outside the United States. Capitalism, when it doesn't have an answer to a structural problem, 
will choose war sometimes. And I think that there's a danger when you see both parties identifying a common enemy and externalizing that enemy, as opposed to solving a problem that's very domestic, like healthcare, like poverty. I think it's often because they don't have an answer that doesn't challenge capitalism or doesn't challenge some of the core structures of like racism, capitalism, sexism, and homophobia that make our system go. And they can either choose to change the system or rally us around some external foe. And I'm not saying that I think that's definitely going to happen. I just think this is how those things start. And there's been some reports that the perception of China as a nation has declined rapidly over the past months in the United States. I think that this plays into that. I think there is a real danger of a of a Biden, and, and even in that ad, Biden talking about how he would have wanted to have inspectors inside of China, and they would have been in there like unilaterally act. That's not a thing you can do to a sovereign nation that can stand up to you. We're used to doing that because we ignore sovereignty, but China would be right to resist that. And I think there's a real danger of choosing a war with the other rising superpower over healthcare, which I, I could see our system making, and I could see our politicians making that choice. Mm-hmm. And this is all coming off too. I mean, we have the rise of anti-Asian American sentiment. We have Vincent Chin, the anniversary of his death was just a little bit ago. And he was someone who was murdered because they thought he was Japanese. And it was during a time of really, really high anti-Japanese sentiment. And so, you know, if people are racist enough to murder you because they think that you're Chinese, they probably actually can't tell the difference between what ethnicity you are or what exact country you're from. Yes, definitely. That's the the danger. And so much, too, about, you know, anti-Asian sentiment is also really rooted in xenophobia and also really rooted in anti-Blackness. And by really pushing for this message, Biden is hurting, you know, a lot of people who who he's claiming to fight for. Yeah. And I, and I think we would also be out of line to not mention that there's also a renewed wave of violence by white supremacists generally uh, targeting Black folks and just a renewed wave of intimidation. We, we mentioned this kind of casually earlier, or I mentioned it, but yeah, there, there are armed people in our capitals, not openly threatening, but there's an implication there. <laughs> and those armed people are increasingly not just those vague individualist right-wingers, but they're part of organized white supremacist militias. And that's, you know, again, these things aren't determinant. We're not on a one-way track towards something, but yeah, that that's a shift from like the Tea Party. Having armed people who are talking about white supremacy in our capital is a different is a is a new thing. Um, <laughs> well, I guess it's a new thing for citizens to be doing it. It's pretty normal for the government to be doing it. But the, yeah, there's some dangerous shifts that Biden is not confronting, and then as you're saying, Hoyan, like making worse by trying to pick out the right racism to employ to get elected. Yes. Got a strong plus one from Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just going to say that I think that the same sentiment that people are trying to use in fighting the people who are protesting in Lansing, which also, you know, by the way, is completely DeVos funded, completely funded by people who have special interests and also, again, own the media, which is how they've gotten so much media coverage. And the the same thing that people are trying to use to fight them is the same way that people are think that we need to defeat Trump and it's not really working. But it's like, oh, like we need to just like love each other and ignore what's going on and pretend that these people don't exist or whatever. And it just doesn't it, it doesn't work. It's not helpful. Yeah. I would agree. Any last thoughts there, Marshall? No. Okay. <laughs> Then yeah, I think one other just piece I think we should talk about is I think 
Juan, you briefly mentioned Tara Reed. There's a bunch of different pieces there. We probably don't have time to fully unpack that, but yeah, I think it plays into themes of her accusations against uh, Joe Biden and the the whole response to them plays into a lot of the themes of this campaign. Do you all have any doubts on her accusations against Joe Biden and the way that they've been handled both by the party and just in general? I guess my thoughts are that it's really been awful to watch how easily people are undoing um, a lot of the work of the past couple of years, right? I think that the Me Too and Times Up movement were always sort of shaky for me in general because I saw how it really prioritized white women and, and didn't really fight for people who'd been talking for a long time. And I think that this was just a clear example of like, yeah, like people fight for shit when it's when it can be popular and when it's convenient for their political agenda. And that doesn't actually mean that they're in solidarity with you, no matter how much people were saying it. Um, and people are just really flipping their values to to support this white man who has a really clear history of being harmful to women and even like young girls. And it's just damaging to watch. It's damaging for me to like have my little sister see stuff like that. Um, and it's it's frustrating, right? Like, how can you say, like, look at him and, like, realize, like, oh, well, like, this, a lot of women came out, but all of them suddenly have to be wrong because he's running for the United States and it doesn't fit in for what we want. And that's frustrating for me. I think that, you know, even before this allegation came out, it was clear that Biden had a problematic history with with women, you know, with inappropriate, you know, touching, unwanted touching, things like that. And I think that all of those things have been ignored. And I mean, that's part of the reason why we are where we are. You know, we didn't even have to get to this point if we had just considered that along with all of the other policy issues, if we had just considered that he has a history of, again, being inappropriate with women. So I think that that's what's frustrating to me is that it shouldn't have even taken this allegation for us to be like, hey, he's probably not the the best candidate. And, you know, I, I see all the time people saying Trump has 60 something, you know, allegations and they're never taken seriously and all that kind of stuff. And this is one of those times where I'm just like, OK, you know, a lot of times I feel like the Democrats really try to hold themselves to a higher standard than, you know, the Republican Party. And at times I feel like that's annoying and problematic and they shouldn't necessarily do that. But this is one of those times where obviously I think that, you know, the Democrats should hold them themselves to a higher standard. So yeah, it's just really frustrating to even be at this point and again, be dealing with a candidate who has a history of having allegations like this versus other candidates. And I'm not even just talking about Bernie, but I'm talking about other candidates who were never seen as, as problematic before and they didn't even make it this far. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just really frustrating. Yeah. No, I think you all both said it. I think the tweet, I guess our common theme is that we are on Twitter that really resonated with me was just like the kind of Joe Biden camp, Joe Biden's campaign killed me too. And like in a way that we didn't think was possible. The core audience that popularized me too has turned against it in an essence just to defend this dog shit campaign. And it's, yeah, I think everything you said is true. It's just incredible um, what they're willing to sacrifice for what is a nothing politician. 
So with all of these incredibly positive discussions, I thought I'd try to close this out with just a little bit of positive intentions here at the end, maybe some good spots from the overall arc of this campaign, some other work that you're doing or other work that's giving you hope. Yeah, bright spots, moments, stuff that you're pulling out of likely not the Biden campaign, but just life in general at this point as we're looking forward politically. Does that seem like a good way to close? Leave us in a little bit better place than like the dark hole of Bidenism. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So from my work on the campaign, I have never been more inspired by young people and their commitment to shaping the world and making sure that we leave it a better place than we found it. You know, I, I have seen people who are still committed to making sure that the policies that Bernie championed are actually adopted in the mainstream. I think that a lot of people never really looked at Bernie as kind of like, you know, the leader of the movement. I think that they kind of saw him as a figurehead and not in a negative way, but, you know, they were determined to do this work and to make some serious gains with or without Bernie. And so, you know, I see a lot of students who are still in progressive spaces. They've either converted their support, their student for Bernie group into another kind of progressive group on campus, or, you know, they've joined organizations and are really trying their best to keep the movement going. And so that's really inspiring to me. And since leaving the campaign, I have taken a little bit of a break, but I am currently looking for some opportunities to continue organizing. You know, I I really wanted to have the opportunity to work on a presidential campaign, and I'm very fortunate that I had the opportunity to work on the Bernie campaign. But that being said, I think that that's probably going to be my my last presidential campaign, and I think I'm going to really try to focus on just doing, again, that organizing work on the ground, specifically around issues that affect Black people. Student organizing is still something that's really important to me, and it's so inspiring to me. So that's where I am. With everything that's going on in the world right now, I just try to keep in mind that we as individuals and I as an individual really do have some sort of power and I can use my experiences and you know my talent and all of that to actually make a difference whether it's small or it's big so that's what keeps me going and and keeps me inspired and I feel like I got a lot out of the campaign and I've been thankful for every opportunity that's come out of it. Awesome a very complete and high bar to set for this reflection. <laughs> Hoyan, do you have feels? Um, I saw a lot of potential for the people who came out of the Bernie campaign, right? I mean, I worked on, on an electoral campaign for a bit, and that was actually really useful for me in being able to, you know, learn how things work, learn some of the tools that people use in the elections, right? Like the Bernie campaign, uh, we used a lot of the same, like, tech. And I mean, it's not great, right? But it's some of the most like developed apps and and dialers and stuff like that that are out there right now. And so I think that's something that's really cool is that now there are all these people who volunteered who now have all these tools under their belt and were able to join something. And I think that there are so many people afterwards when Bernie dropped out who were like, okay, well, what should I do now? And like, where should I join? And a lot of people were able to welcome them into their political homes. And to me, that's something that's really hopeful because everybody has that moment where they enter a movement and then they wonder where they should go next. And that is so crucial of a time where we can be making sure that we 
open up our spaces to let people in and all fight together. And now there are so many more people who are ready for that. And I don't think that Bernie would have ever been like a actual revolution, but I think that the amount of people that he or his campaign was able to inspire, especially young folks, was a really good thing and, and remains a really good thing. For me, I mean, the work that I'm focused on and that I have been doing, I didn't really engage that much with the Bernie campaign. I mean, I volunteered a couple of times, but um, I have been focusing a lot on mutual aid work right now. Michigan, if you've been reading the news, you know that Michigan is like pretty fucked, especially this week, right? We have the flooding, we have Trump is coming today, we have um, the protests and Lansing, whatever, um, and our state is being super highly hit by coronavirus. And we're also like a swing state now, right? We're a really big battleground state and people are coming in and taking advantage of that and taking advantage of my people. And so that's a lot of the work that I've been involved in right now. There's a lot of shit going on and like, what do people need? People need food, people need water, people need um, housing. And so that is something that we're working towards and sort of thinking of how we can use what's going on here, how coronavirus is exposing all of the intentional ways that the system is working to hurt us. How can we use this as a really big political opportunity to come out in a couple years with what we want and to fight for what we want? Um, and I think that there's a really big moment here and that's what I'm fighting for right now. Awesome. Yeah, I think I would plus one a lot of the things you all said. I think just to add in some good spots, I think it felt good to scare some of the mainstream folks who think they're so secure in their analysis and their understanding of the world, prove them wrong at least a little bit that there are millions of people ready for some of these ideas. I think also just masses of people talking about and using the word socialism and even not having one definition, but debating that and reading into that and finding all the different complex histories of uh, socialism in the form of both anti-imperialism, various like anti-colonial movements, as well as the homegrown American socialism that has been a part of our political culture for uh, centuries. I think there's a lot of really powerful work that's been done there and that we don't always acknowledge is that like in 2015, nobody said publicly they were a socialist or very few people did. It was our small group, people like us chilling out, talking behind the scenes after an event or something like that. You didn't get on stage and go, I'm a socialist of any kind. And so that's it. I think a, a huge debt I will always feel towards the Bernie campaign is that we can be more open and have a debate about what that future should look like. And it's not just we're against capitalism or we're against racism. It's we're starting to talk about what we positively want in the world. And I think that's an amazing change. I still have kind of an open question. I think often at these moments we retreat into localism and that's not to say that's not really important work, but these historic wealth disparities aren't going to be addressed at the municipal or even regional level. Rich people hide out um, and they're all over the place. And I think like looking at like places like the Midwest and Detroit, you can see that these are places that at different points had more radical politics and tried to redistribute wealth more actively and were punished for that by powerful and wealthy people. And so like, yeah, how do we, how, what is, what form does a national movement for some of these ideas take? And how do we build that as we're looking towards that radical future? That's kind of what I've been obsessed about, why I'm now working on a podcast, kind of, why I read all the lefty books that I bought myself over the, my life. <laughs> What's I think become an increasingly pressing question. Yeah, I think that's all we got. Thanks, thanks to both of y'all for being on. Um, this has been an experiment. I'm gonna edit this down, possibly into two episodes. And it's just been been great talking with you. Uh, any final thoughts? No, that's it for me. Thank you for setting this up, Ian. It was amazing. Yeah, thank you, Ian. Thanks to both of you for bearing with my 
long stream of consciousness. I don't think yours was the longest stream of consciousness on here in the amount that I feel like I talked, certainly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's, it, this has been really great. Uh, I've just, I've kind of forgot we were recording in the middle and just enjoyed talking with y'all. I hope everybody enjoyed this. Um, stay tuned for future episodes. I think next week we're doing Leftist Talk Harry Potter. Um, so look out for that. And yeah, we'll figure out what this is as we go. It's been great sharing some space with you. Talk to you soon.